and welcome to the Climate Conversation. I'm Dan Brissett, Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. And with me is Sydney O'Shaughnessy. Welcome, Sid. Hi, Dan. How exciting is it that we're finally kicking off season two today? I am very, very excited to kick off season two today with you. Um, really can't wait to get started. Same. And we promised our listeners that we would be doing something a little bit different in season two. And today we're actually going to start doing that. So instead of just jumping into an interview with an expert, I think that I should tell you a story today. Sid, that works out great because I would love to hear a story today. Awesome. Okay. So this story happens all the way in North Carolina. Down in the outer banks of North Carolina in Dare County is the town of Mags Head. Mags Head is situated on the northern portion of the Outer Banks and stretches more than 11 miles along the coast. It's known for its sand dunes, beaches, and for its popularity as a prime vacation spot. The town literally boasts of its natural and historical attractions. But for its beauty and tourism, Nags Head is still along the coast. And in a climate sense, that puts it in quite the predicament. Ah, uh, yes, I can see where this is going. Nags Head, like all coastal towns and cities, faced increasingly severe and frequent climate impacts like sea level rise, severe storms, coastal erosion, just to name a few. Definitely, you knew exactly where I was going. But Nags Head isn't going under without a fight. Since 2015, the town has been incorporating climate resilience planning to prepare for the changing climate. They've done a whole bunch of things, including mapping potential damage from storms and sea level rise, adding coastal resilience into their comprehensive plan, and meeting with community, community members just to hear from them and to see what's the best way to solve this problem. But you don't have to take my word for it. Here is Amanda Martin, North Carolina's Chief Resilience Officer, to highlight the state's approach to building resilience. Um, I would say across the state, there are very few towns, cities or towns right now that aren't thinking about resilience because our state has had such devastating disasters, both on a statewide scale and then on the highly localized scale. We just had devastating flooding in Western North Carolina. So one great thing that North Carolina has is a resilience plan. And there are a lot of different ways to address resilience. But my background is that I'm a city and regional planner and I like a plan. Um, so in 2018, the uh, Governor Cooper issued Executive Order 80, which is North Carolina's commitment to address climate change. And in that executive order was the call for state agencies to come together to produce this resilience plan. Um, and so we're kind of a point person for the state's resilience expertise so we can support sound decision making, ensure that every dollar we're spending in the state is spent in a resilient way. So um, I would say our approach to resilience in North Carolina is always tailored to the place that we're talking about or the field that we're talking about, but we do, we are very fortunate to have a plan and that we can show how we're implementing resilience through that plan. But this is just one town. Now, one with a lot of resources for adaptation planning, working towards resilience, but are there others? What about the towns with fewer resources for disaster planning? Here's Amanda again. So to serve communities that are rural or more smaller, smaller in nature, um, and also just to serve communities more equitably, the state has launched a resilient communities program. Um, and this is a program, it's run by two cabinet level agencies, the Department of Environmental Quality runs it at the coast, 
and the office I work for, the North Carolina Office of Recovery and Resiliency, which is out of our Department of Public Safety, we run a more regional program that um, has an inland focus as well. Um, and that's an effort to bring those state resources to, uh, to local government where important decisions are being made, but to provide them with analyses, decision support, um, some of the technical assistance that those local governments probably don't have on staff um, to make their own sound decisions about where they want to invest. But North Carolina isn't the only state building resilience. In Illinois, for example, Edith Macra, the Director of Environmental Initiatives for the Metropolitan Mayor's Caucus, is also working to build resilience through the whole Chicago region. Here's Edith. But about five years ago, I launched uh, my um, project to bring together clarity in terms of what the mayors wanted to do, and that's called um, the Greenest Region Compact, what they wanted to do on sustainability, and created a common set of um, uh, sustainability goals and asked them to formally support it. And that Greenest Region Compact now has 136 municipalities and counties um, that have formally adopted that. And um, we, we sort of, as we grew, we found out we are the largest regional sustainability collaborative in the US. And in as uh, we got more awareness um, about our role as local governments in climate um, around 2017, I wanted to escalate um, our focus on climate and so began um, activating the mayors to do that. And their plan is unique because it focuses on integrating resilience and greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Here's Edith again discussing that plan. What our plan did then is um, look specifically at models that were created for cities, adapted them to regions, and said, based on the regional greenhouse gas inventory, where are the greatest sources of emissions and where are the actions that could have the greatest impact of reducing those emissions. So that's really what the mitigation plan is. Um, and then the whole thing is scaled down for local government action. So we look specifically at the role of municipalities in impacting these very large systems in the economy and public opinion and investments and systems beyond the municipal control, but we scaled all the actions down for the role of local governments. Um, and that's how we approach the mitigation section. Adaptation, while I initially approached the adaptation um, section with some apprehension, not really understanding what that meant, once we got into it um, and we had a strong public engagement process, it, um, it became apparent to all of us that as local governments, we know, how to, we know how to adapt and how to build resilience. We just need to focus. So not unlike our mitigation um, activities, the things that municipalities are particularly good at um, or have a very strong role in includes connecting to their residents and their constituents and raising awareness and helping them individually as property owners, as residents, as businesses and institutions prepare. And their work is incredible. But even though we've just highlighted communities working to build their resilience, it seems like there's still something missing. Because every time we talk about these communities, it's like their individual case studies, trying to navigate their program development without a national framework. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And I think that's exactly why I told you the story, because it seems that scaling up these programs to a national level is really difficult. And maybe not just scaling up, but also beginning programs in towns where there hasn't been any planning in the past. Where can these towns look when designing their programs? Like, where's the framework? 
Right. That's a great point. And Sid, I know you've done some digging on this. And what have you found? You know me too well. So I found this resource called the U.S. Climate Resilience Toolkit. And I think it might be the key to scaling up national resilience efforts and standardizing the steps cities and towns across America need to take to build resilience. Uh, Now, this sounds very interesting. Let's learn some more. Sure. So today I brought on Ned Gardiner with thanks to our policy manager, Anna McGinn. Um, Ned is the engagement manager for the toolkit at NOAA, and he's here to walk us through it. Hi, Ned. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So I think we should just jump right in. Our first question for you is, what's the story behind the toolkit? How and why did it come to be? Who was involved in its development and its continued improvement? So we built the toolkit because I work for NOAA and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is mostly known for the weather. We provide the weather forecasts for the nation. Uh, Because we do weather, we've had a decades long focus on climate science, as well as data and providing technical support to help people use those data. So it's really common in agriculture and insurance, for example, to use climate information to plan and make financial decisions. So since NOAA's mission already was focused on helping people deal with opportunities and challenges of climate, both variability and climate change, we built the website um, to help broaden beyond the markets that we were already served and help people adapt to climate change. So we stepped up when the White House asked, you know, who in the federal government could put together a resource? We raised our hand because it was right in our wheelhouse. Um, And so we expanded from NOAA's mission to a whole of federal government. So we've got resources from throughout the federal governments in the toolkit, hundreds of tools and case studies. Um, So we do this for free on behalf of the nation for all the federal agencies. And um, we've been doing it for about seven years, helping people make plans and adapt. Um, The team is very small and it's at NOAA's climate program office with help from some folks from the University of North Carolina, Asheville's MEMAC. And we've developed custom tools and a framework for helping people do adaptation. And we continue to innovate all of those things essentially on our own. So we'd love to get some uh, more resources for it because we know it's an important priority, but we're going to keep keep at it because we're committed to it. Thanks, Ned. What are the steps that are required in order to reach kind of a, a state of resilience? And what allows, how do you work sort of with those steps to make sure that they're applicable across the country, even though places and communities are very different? Well, you know, resilience as an idea, it comes from ecology. So I don't know if you're familiar with, if you think about a forest, if there's a storm and trees fall down, the vegetation will regenerate and grow back and some species will grow in first and then they'll get replaced. The concept of resilience comes from ecology, this idea of disturbance, regeneration, stabilization, and then maybe another um, 
disturbance. Um, so we're looking at that idea applied now to human and social systems. So you never reach resilience, you become more resilient. It's, a, it's, it's more like an adjective that you, you can get better and better at dealing with disturbances, storms, um, economic shocks, population migration. A lot of different things can cause disturbance or change in a system, <clears throat> but we're very much focused on the climate stressors that exacerbate change. So the wildfires that are going on right now are exacerbated by climate change. The uh, increased heavy precipitation that's being experienced all around the country, more drought, heat waves, deadly heat waves that we've experienced this summer, all of those are influenced by climate. So becoming more resilient to those disturbances means getting people out of harm's way, having emergency response plans, maybe improving the adaptive capacity in place so that the actual event is not as damaging, even if it's severe. So we have developed a framework called the steps to resilience. And it involves first evaluating vulnerability and risk from climate related stressors, and then looking at what decisions can you make to do those things I was talking about. And what's interesting is that like if you think about the state of North Carolina, they have to think about resilience for a whole, a large region and provide services when local governments ask for them. So the way they think about what could be damaged in climate is different than a local community because a local community has to respond to individual citizens. And if they're dealing with flooding, how do those citizens recover? How do those people respond? I mean, they have to be housed and fed and their house maybe needs to be replaced or insulation replaced and mold and mildew mitigated. So the steps to resilience is the framework for working at all those different scales and all different disciplines. So housing and transportation and natural resources all have different tools and resources and approaches, all of that's in the toolkit. And then the steps helps keep it organized. So when I go in and work with a community, we, we look at the different scales, the different disciplines, the different ways that climate can affect them. And then we come up with plans that meet their specific needs. Yeah, so it's just like a way to kind of guide that planning to make sure that we're all kind of reaching that same goal, is that, which is kind of building resilience towards these climate impacts. Absolutely. Um, okay, great. I'm glad I got that. But now I kind of want to take it back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show, which was Nags Head and Chicago. How would the experiences of these two communities change if there was a national adaptation and resilience framework? Well, so actually we did use the steps to resilience in both the state of North Carolina and in the, the region around Chicago. Um, so both the state of North Carolina and the Chicago region are now looking at the implementation phase, having done some analysis of their climate related vulnerability, what do they do? So in North Carolina, one of the things that 
they're looking at. Amanda Martin, for instance, is interested in how do we provide some expertise to help a whole group of towns in a geographic region with some similarities develop a plan and implement it when they don't even have capacity to have, you know, people fill roles that in a big city would be easy to fill with different people. So she was telling me that, for example, the same person might be the fire chief and a town council person and the floodplain manager. So asking that person to also be a climate expert isn't realistic. So in fact, we need to build more capacity and bring that expertise to help those people do their job in a way that's climate smart. And that's what we're uh, setting up with the Climate Smart Communities Initiative at NOAA uh, next year if Congress will support it. We're gonna put in place a systematic way to do the, go through the steps to resilience and help adaptation professionals bring climate science and data and decision-making skills to communities of all sizes um, to evaluate risk and then do something about it. So it's really interesting, the idea of, you know, making this national initiative, the systemic initiative you just described, sort of, we have a big country and it's very geographically diverse. Um, it's also economically diverse, it's racially diverse, it's culturally diverse, it's a very diverse place. And having something that sort of sits sort of at a national level that can be deployed as a resource across the country is really fascinating. What, um, you talked a little bit about this happening next year. Sort of what are some of the key things that have to happen before that's fully up and running? And can you help our audience understand or something that you just mentioned, which is a role of Congress. So where does Congress, what role does Congress play in this happening? And what role does NOAA play? And are there any other agencies that have a role to play in sort of making this initiative a real thing that we can all use as a resource? Well, Congress has a critical role to play in appropriating funds to support a new program that would focus on adaptation. Um, the last mile service providers that I described a few minutes ago. And only Congress can really come up with funds. We've never been funded to um, by Congress to do this work. We've done it out of our own mission. The leadership at NOAA has strongly backed the idea that we really must use climate information for better decisions. Congress has in the past supported climate services programs that provide insight into different regional priorities. So the RESA program, for instance, is something funded through our office where you have different centers in different regions and they understand what are the climate impacts in that area and who are the people that you need to work with to get the data to. Our focus and my focus in particular is on getting the, to the last mile, using that information and making decisions in a different way. But there, you know, NOAA is proposing that schema and we, we intend to be very successful in it by systematically coming up with a way to develop plans and come up with results that are comparable so that we can show the return on investment of our efforts. And we'll be working very closely with federal partners throughout the government because 
there are programs from FEMA and Housing and Urban Development, so Department of Homeland Security and Housing and Urban Development, that provide literally billions of dollars for recovery and disaster prevention and emergency management and transportation and housing. Those issues don't have climate in them, but climate affects them. So what we at NOAA are doing is leveraging our technical expertise, understanding climate science, to help direct dollars from other programs where they're needed most to do adaptation work that needs to be done on the ground. And so that's how we see this, this evolving over the next couple of years is continuing to work with our federal partners and developing new capacity for those last mile service providers to know where to get resources, know how to be successful getting those funds, be able to document the return on investment of climate smart investments and lay the groundwork for all of that through community focused resilience planning. That's essentially what the Climate Smart Communities Initiative is. And we're hoping to get an appropriation from Congress in this next year's budget to do it. Well, that was a great episode, Sid. Great way to kick off season two. Um, really, really appreciated sort of the story that you told us today. Um, coastal resilience is something that we think a lot about at EESI and for very good reason. Coastal areas are among the first that are um, um, realizing the most severe climate impacts and um, realizing those impacts on a more frequent schedule or a more frequent basis. Um, we did a lot of work on coastal resilience in our congressional education work, briefings, our coastal resilience briefing series. We published our big report, uh, Resilient Future for Coastal Communities in October, 2020. This is a really big issue. And we also try really hard whenever we're talking about climate mitigation. So things like reducing greenhouse gas emissions, always also looking for ways to work in climate adaptation and climate resilience whether it's through the measures themselves, like nature-based solutions, um, or whether it's um, ensuring that while people like we just heard from working on coastal resilience planning, they're also thinking about mitigation efforts and vice versa, making sure that anyone working on climate mitigation is also thinking ahead about adaptation and resilience. Exactly, and though um, climate resilience planning may be daunting, it's good to know that there are cities all over the country that are taking on that challenge and that more resources like the Climate Resilience Toolkit are becoming available for them every day. Couldn't agree more, Sid. Thanks again for a great episode. And thanks to our audience for joining us uh, to kick off season two. Um, this is just the start. We've got lots of great stuff coming up um, and I'm really, really looking forward to um, taking this journey together, uh, not just with you and Team ESI, but also with our audience. So thanks so much for listening. Sid, why don't I turn it over to you to um, uh, sign us off and take us out of here. Sounds good. If you like this story and want to learn more about ESI's work related to resilience and adaptation, head to our website at ESI.org. Also, follow us on social media at ESI Online for all of our recent updates. The Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. Go to eesi.org slash sign up to subscribe. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.